This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In 1955, Dr. Jonas Salk was about to announce to the world media that his polio vaccine was safe and effective. But someone wanted to stop the presses. That someone was Dr. Bernice Eddy, a doctor with the National Institutes of Health brought on to test the vaccine's safety. Throughout 1955, Dr. Eddy had tested vaccines made by a half dozen different manufacturers on lab monkeys and she noticed that something was wrong with a vaccine made by Cutter Laboratories. Within days of receiving the vaccine, the monkeys were dying from polio. When Dr. Eddy tried to tell her superior, NIH Director William Sebrel, of her findings, she was silenced and accused of being an alarmist. The polio vaccine, including the batch made by Cutter Laboratories, was released to the public. Eager to put everyone at ease about the vaccine's safety, Dr. Alton Oxner, a world-renowned surgeon and a large shareholder in Cutter Laboratories, offered to administer Cutter's polio vaccine to his own two-year-old grandson. Eight days later, Oxner's grandson was dead from polio. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the ParCast Network podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. Ah, but sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked us how you can help support the show, and if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our second episode about vaccines. Last week, we discussed the science behind vaccines, the history of their development, and some of the incidents that occurred as they were released to the general public. This week, we're discussing conspiracy theories about vaccines. What's inside of them, who's controlling them, and for what purpose? According to most scientists and medical professionals around the world, vaccines are overwhelmingly safe and effective. By injecting a bit of a weakened virus into the body, a vaccine teaches your body how to fight off that virus if it ever encounters it in full force. There are risks and possible side effects, but it's generally accepted that the reward far outweighs the risk. While there have been a few incidents in the history of vaccine manufacture, including the Cutter incident, the discovery of the SV40 virus in vaccines, and the swine flu vaccine inexplicably causing GBS, those events are considered outliers and mostly attributed to human error. That's the official story. But millions of very vocal conspiracy theorists believe otherwise. Suspicion about vaccines isn't a new phenomenon. As far back as 1871, The citizens of Leicester, England, stood up against forced vaccinations after they began to theorize that the smallpox vaccine their children were receiving was actually causing them to become sick or even die. After a historic march of over 80,000 protesters, the parents in Leicester won support all across England, and Parliament agreed to do away with mandatory vaccination. Thus, the anti-vaccination movement was born. That movement continues today, even despite resounding proof that vaccines are safe. It begs the question, if vaccines are dangerous, what's really in them? Who's behind the curtain controlling the vaccine industry, and what do they want? Today, we'll be examining three of the biggest conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines. Conspiracy theory number one. Vaccines contain hidden chemicals meant to control the world population. Conspiracy theory number two. Drug companies are working in cahoots with the U.S. government to maximize their profits and make vaccines mandatory by law. Conspiracy theory number three. Most vaccines don't even work, and the concept of herd immunity is a lie put forward to coerce the public into receiving more unnecessary vaccinations. 
The most popular vaccine-related conspiracy is that vaccines contain secret ingredients as part of a covert plot to spread diseases and control populations. The main piece of evidence to support this theory is the SV40 incident in the early 1960s, where a virus from a rhesus monkey was discovered in polio vaccines. Coincidentally, the person that first discovered the SV40 virus was Dr. Bernice Eddy, the same researcher who tried to prevent the Cutter incident. She discovered the virus, which had never yet been identified, in a batch of polio vaccines sometime between 1959 and 1960. She concluded that the virus originated in the monkey cells that were being used to grow polio virus for the vaccines. Dr. Eddy wasn't sure what effects this virus might have on humans who received the vaccine. She injected the SV40 virus into hamsters and realized that the virus caused the test subjects to grow cancer. When she notified her superiors at the National Institutes of Health about the infected vaccines, once again, she was silenced. Dr. Eddy wouldn't need to wait long to be proven right, though. In 1960, scientists at Merck and Company, another polio vaccine manufacturer, also discovered SV40 in their vaccines. The problem was now undeniable. While government officials, scientists, and doctors acted shocked at the findings, the truth is that while developing the vaccine in the 50s, there were already indications that using monkey cells could be problematic. Monkeys carry their own simian viruses, and using the kidney cells from monkeys to grow poliovirus for use in vaccines could transfer any number of those viruses into humans. What made SV40 different from other simian viruses is its possible connection to cancer, as discovered by Dr. Eddy's hamster experiment. Over the past 40 years, many studies have found SV40 in human soft tissue and bone cancers, though a small number of other studies have refuted those findings. But back in the 1960s, Many scientists and medical professionals believe that viruses couldn't cause cancer. So, while the vaccines containing SV40 were recalled beginning in 1963, government officials and scientists still told the public there was nothing to worry about. The CDC's position on SV40 and cancer has seemed to shift over the years. Today, if you visit their website to look at the information about SV40, you'll find just a few vague paragraphs about the virus. But if you use the Wayback Machine website to view the CDC's website as recently as 2012, you'll find a whole host of information. Although none of the information overtly states that the virus causes cancer, some sections do imply that it possibly could. The ostensible reason for the deletion of information is general website redesign. But is it possible the CDC is covering up the truth? Is there a proven connection between SV40 and cancer that they don't want us to know about? To some, whether or not SV40 causes cancer isn't as important as the fact that the incident occurred in the first place. Scientists knew that using monkey cells was risky, but they did it anyway. 
Dr. Eddy explicitly told a government agency that a potentially dangerous virus had infected the polio vaccine, and they let it be distributed to the public anyway. If a virus can be quietly distributed through vaccines without the public's knowledge, could someone be using vaccines to spread something even more nefarious than SV40? The answer to that might depend on what you consider nefarious. In 1998, when Dr. Wakefield published his study linking vaccines to autism, it sparked concerns about an ingredient that had been used in vaccines since the 1930s, a type of mercury called thimerosal. Thimerosal is used as a preservative, as it helps to control the growth of bacteria, fungus, and other germs. Although the chemical can be highly toxic, the scientific consensus is that the tiny amount of thimerosal in vaccines is perfectly harmless. But as the Wakefield study made the rounds on the internet, people began to draw conclusions that thimerosal was responsible for the spike in autism. After all, mercury had been known for ages to cause serious mental issues. Mercury poisoning is even commonly called Mad Hatter syndrome due to the nervous system damage hatmakers suffered after years of exposure to mercury vapors. Parents began to organize online and demand that thimerosal be removed from vaccines. But U.S. health officials and vaccine manufacturers maintained that there was no evidence linking the chemical to autism. In mid-1999, the Public Health Service, in addition to many other U.S. health officials, concluded that as a precaution, children should reduce their exposure to mercury in all forms, including vaccines. In response, the U.S. government requested that all licensed vaccine manufacturers remove thimerosal from their products, starting in 2001. Over the years since, Health professionals and the CDC have contended that thimerosal poses no serious risk to human health. And yet, it still hasn't been put back into childhood vaccines. So, is the chemical dangerous or not? It seems like health officials are talking out of both sides of their mouth. It's better to be safe than sorry. It should be seen as a show of good faith that the government listened to parents' concerns, even if there's no evidence thimerosal poses a risk. If nothing else, the precautions against thimerosal seem to disprove any theory that the government was intentionally injecting children with a chemical that causes autism. Well, maybe the government wasn't behind this one, but someone else could be using vaccines for their own diabolical purposes. For example, Bill Gates? Starting in 2000, Bill and Melinda Gates, through their charitable foundation, have spent billions to provide free and low-cost vaccines for children in developing countries. Over the years, Bill Gates has stated on the record many times that one of the initiative's objectives is to reduce population growth. That sounds pretty bad when taken out of context. It's easy to see why conspiracy theorists assume there's something in Gates' vaccines that's intended to kill or sterilize the people who receive it. But the truth is that vaccination can control population growth by actually keeping more children alive. In developing countries, families often rely on children for labor. If parents have a child who's paralyzed or disabled by a disease like polio, they're more likely to have another child in the hopes that the next child will grow up healthy. If that second child is afflicted by disease too, 
the cycle can continue. It sounds insensitive to reduce children to an economic equation, but the simple fact is, with each new mouth to feed, it's more difficult for struggling families to stay afloat. And if those children are sick or disabled and unable to work, the problem is magnified. By providing low and no-cost vaccines, the foundation's hope is that more children will grow up healthy, and as a result, parents will choose to have less children, thus controlling population numbers and keeping children who are already born out of poverty. That's a noble goal indeed, but still, a lot of people, both in the U.S. and abroad, believe the vaccines distributed by American charities, like the Gates Foundation, must have a secret nefarious purpose. Well, there's actually a very good reason why that rumor persists. In 2011, briefly after U.S. soldiers killed Osama bin Laden, the CIA sent undercover agents to Pakistan posed as aid workers. The agents went door-to-door distributing vaccines in the town where the terrorist leader had been hiding. Their real objective was to collect DNA from the townspeople to track down relatives of bin Laden. Their mission wasn't very successful, and when they were exposed, the political fallout was massive. World charity organizations scolded the CIA and White House. After the scandal was exposed, religious extremists in Pakistan had all the fodder they needed to claim that all vaccines were a dangerous ploy by corrupt Western governments. The propaganda worked, and since 2012, vaccination rates in Pakistan have been dropping. Even before the CIA vaccination scandal, rumors spread by religious extremists were taking hold in countries like India, Pakistan, and Nigeria. One of the most popular rumors was that the polio vaccine contained an ingredient that sterilized girls as part of a population control scheme by the U.S. government. There's been no evidence ever to support that claim. Unfortunately, though, with the U.S. government's sketchy history of covering up information and silencing whistleblowers, especially regarding matters of vaccine safety, it's easy to understand the skepticism about their true intentions. It seems that no matter what wild rumor anti-vaccination advocates cook up, they'll always have a bit of history to back them up. That's not just limited to foreign countries, either. Here in the U.S., there's a growing movement calling for the government to investigate the presence of glyphosate in vaccines. Glyphosate is an herbicide that's been found in the animal byproducts used to make the vaccines. Glyphosate, better known by its trade name, Roundup, is an herbicide manufactured by a conspiracy theory favorite, Monsanto. Glyphosate first appeared on the market in 1974, and by 2007, it had become the most popular agricultural herbicide in the United States. In 2015, the World Health Organization classified glyphosate as, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans, end quote. In other words, it can probably cause cancer. A year later, the WHO and United Nations issued a joint report stating that while there were some studies suggesting an association between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, there had only been one large-scale study on the matter, which found, quote, no evidence of an association at any exposure level, 
end quote. So the connection between glyphosate and cancer is under contention. Monsanto, for its part, firmly maintains that glyphosate does not cause cancer and its herbicide is perfectly harmless. That's exactly what Monsanto said when they manufactured Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. The carcinogenic compound polychlorinated biphenyl, or PCB, before it was banned in 1976. The uranium for the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay, Monsanto doesn't have the best track record. Let's assume for a minute that glyphosate, like Agent Orange, PCB, and radiation poisoning, is more dangerous than initially believed. But we still have another question to answer. Is it in our vaccines? In 2016, the anti-chemical activist group Moms Across America announced that a study they'd commissioned found traces of glyphosate in samples of five common childhood vaccines. The herbicide presumably made its way into the vaccines through animal byproducts used in the manufacturing process. That study has never been released, let alone peer-reviewed. Several scientists and organizations have criticized the methodology used by the study. Monsanto itself released a statement saying, quote, The testing method used here was developed as a quick and inexpensive screening test for water samples to decide whether additional testing with a more expensive and precise method is needed. This quick and inexpensive screening test has only been shown to work well in water, not vaccines, not wine, not beer, not milk, not eggs, just water, end quote. Furthermore, it's unclear how glyphosate could have found its way into vaccines in the first place. The animal cells used in vaccine manufacture are grown in tightly controlled labs, not harvested from farm animals. And even so, glyphosate isn't retained in plant cells or animal tissue cells. So it seems like this claim, scary as it sounds, lacks any serious evidence to support it. Looking at it all together, some potentially harmful substances like SV40 and thimerosal have been found in vaccines. But the evidence of an intentional scheme to harm the public still falls short. The SV40 incident was an egregious oversight by both scientists and government agencies that were aware of the danger of using monkey cells. But at least the contaminated vaccines were eventually recalled. The CIA's fake vaccine distribution campaign in Pakistan does present us with an example of vaccines being used for secretive purposes. But as far as we know, that scandal didn't involve injecting anyone with secret chemicals. All in all, I'd give this theory a 3 out of 10 for believability. It's fully possible that a dangerous substance could be dispersed through vaccines without the public's knowledge. But is there currently a wide-reaching conspiracy to control world population numbers with deadly vaccinations? The evidence there doesn't quite add up. So, we agree that the government, vaccine manufacturers, or evil billionaires aren't using vaccines to kill billions. But, is it possible that the U.S. government is working with pharmaceutical companies to a different end? Up next, we'll take a closer look at the relationship between pharmaceutical companies and the U.S. government with conspiracy theory number two. Now, back to the story. 
It's time to take a look at conspiracy theory number two. Are drug companies working in cahoots with the US government to make vaccines mandatory by law? for the sake of maximizing their profits. This one goes back to the early 1970s, when a whole host of new vaccines were hitting the market, bringing with them new claims of adverse side effects and injuries. Thanks in part to a landmark court decision to award money to a victim of the Cutter incident decades earlier, the door was wide open for plaintiffs to seek damages against vaccine manufacturers. By the late 70s, it's estimated that vaccines were a $6 billion industry, but manufacturers were possibly facing a total of $30 billion in lawsuits. The mounting legal costs had an adverse effect on the price of vaccines. Many had jumped from around 17 cents each in the 60s to over $11 each by the early 80s. Vaccine manufacturers began to lobby Congress for a solution. They argued that if they had to keep fighting lawsuits and paying out huge damages, the vaccine industry would become unsustainable, leaving the public once again without any defense against diseases like polio. But conspiracy theorists claim what really happened was that vaccine manufacturers colluded together and threatened Congress. They allegedly told Congress members that if they didn't find a solution to their costly legal battles, they'd simply stop making the DTaP vaccine, which protects against whooping cough. If all the major vaccine manufacturers stopped producing the DTaP vaccine, it could lead to a major public health crisis if there were a whooping cough outbreak. It's no secret that pharmaceutical companies routinely lobby Congress, but this sort of negotiation tactic would be horrifically unorthodox, if not illegal. Whether or not that story is true, whatever sort of lobbying Big Pharma did must have been effective, because in 1986, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce drafted the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program Act. As we discussed last week, this bill included the creation of a vaccine court, which would pay limited damages to victims funded by a new tax on all vaccines. You heard that right the damages would be paid by tax-paying citizens, not the vaccine manufacturers. When the bill became law in late 1986, the vaccine industry enjoyed a protection from litigation the likes of which no other industry had ever seen, not even big oil. Proponents of the vaccine court claim that it's actually a better system for victims, as the burden of proof to win a claim is lower than in an actual courtroom. But the vaccine court put in place strict limits on who was allowed to sue for damages. There was a severely limited time frame to report vaccine-related injuries to the government, as little as two hours for some vaccines. And the injury, or side effect in question, has to be on a pre-approved list of known injuries or adverse effects provided by the vaccine's manufacturers. And for those whose claims fall outside the vaccine court's strict, seemingly arbitrary rules, there's little recourse left for them. A 2011 Supreme Court decision ruled that all vaccine-related injuries, including those caused by known design defects, must be settled within the vaccine court. If the vaccine court denies a claim, the victims can't take the matter into an actual court of law. 
The two dissenting judges on the case, Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg, were concerned that if they set a precedent that any and all claims must be confined to the vaccine court, there would be no accountability encouraging vaccine manufacturers to make a safe product. Some believe those concerns were valid. Ever since the vaccine court was officially established in 1988, vaccine incidents have been on the rise. According to the CDC's website, from 1955 to 1988, there were only three vaccine-related safety incidents, the Cutter incident, SV40, and the swine flu vaccines increased GBS risk. After 1988, when the vaccine court was created, there have been seven incidents in the same length of time. It seems like manufacturers stopped being concerned with safety once their liability was limited. It's also possible the discrepancy is due to the increased number of vaccines administered in general. Vaccines were still in their infancy in the mid to late 20th century, but in recent decades, vaccines for a wide variety of illnesses have become widely available. It's only natural there would be more safety incidents as the number and variety of vaccinations increases. Still, if the vaccine industry is no longer bound by the rules of an actual courtroom, there's a huge financial incentive to create and distribute more vaccines regardless of their safety or effectiveness. For proof of that, just take a look at the CDC's vaccination schedule. In 1983, before the creation of the vaccine court, the number of vaccines recommended for children 2 months to 15 years old was 24 doses. By 2016, the number of vaccines from birth to age 18 had climbed to 67 doses. This is the highest number of vaccines recommended by any government body in the world. Which leads some to speculate. Why does the U.S. government recommend so many vaccines, especially when vaccine companies have so little incentive to create safe and effective products? The answer might be found in congressional lobbying records. In 1998, pharmaceutical companies spent close to $70 million on lobbying. From that point on, the amount only rises every year, topping $270 million in 2017. Meanwhile, in 2009, the global market worth of vaccines was at $24 billion. By 2016, it had nearly doubled to $52 billion. It seems that for Big Pharma, a little lobbying goes a long way. Bear in mind, correlation between increased lobbying, spending, and increased market worth does not necessarily mean the two are related. It could even be the opposite. Pharmaceutical companies are spending more on lobbying because they have more profits to spend. That argument is a tough sell for people who have been injured by faulty vaccines and have no legal recourse to hold the manufacturers accountable. Whatever way you spin it, Big Pharma's lobbying efforts are prime conspiracy theory fodder. These companies already have complete protection from liability. What more could they want? What are they still fighting for? And here's the crux of this conspiracy theory. Vaccine manufacturers are allegedly lobbying for mandatory vaccinations solely for the sake of their own profits. Well, there's currently no federal mandate for vaccinations, 
But all 50 states require mandatory vaccinations for children to enroll in public schools, with a few exemptions depending on the state. Many Americans see this type of requirement as an attack on their personal liberty. In 2015, California passed a law getting rid of the exemptions for childhood vaccinations based on personal and religious beliefs. Immediately, there was a push to have the same law mirrored in other states. In the first month of 2017, there were 61 bills across 22 states that focused on vaccines. 21 of those bills focused on mandatory vaccinations. Conspiracy theorists believe state lawmakers are working with pharmaceutical companies behind the scenes to make vaccinations mandatory across the nation. Despite the protests of citizens who want to make medical decisions for themselves, And it's easy to point to the amount of lobbying money Big Pharma pays to politicians as proof. certainly is. But unfortunately, there's no way to prove that lawmakers are being pressured by Big Pharma to make vaccinations mandatory. They could be acting on a sincere belief that vaccines are the best thing for the public health. With the protection of vaccine companies against liability in 1988, the evidence of vaccine incidents going up post-1988, the flood of pharmaceutical money going into the pockets of politicians, and the ever-increasing profits enjoyed by the vaccine makers, it's pretty hard to deny that the government is protecting the vaccine industry to some degree. I agree. But whether it's for personal profit or out of a conviction that vaccines serve a greater good, we may never know for sure. Corporate lobbying in itself isn't illegal or out of the ordinary. Until we see some hard evidence that vaccine manufacturers have bribed, blackmailed, or otherwise coerced government officials into doing their bidding, I'll give this theory an 8 out of 10. There's one more theory to examine, and this one is a doozy. Vaccines don't even work. And herd immunity is a lie spread by vaccine advocates to coerce people into getting more vaccinations. This one is supported by a key piece of evidence, booster shots. It's an established fact that most vaccines wear off after about 10 years, with some only lasting two to three years. When was the last time you got booster shots for mumps, measles, whooping cough, or hepatitis? If it's been over a decade, are you sure you're protected if you come into contact with a dangerous disease? What about your co-workers or family? Could your environment be more dangerous than you think? Up next, we'll take a look at the truth about vaccine effectiveness. Now, back to the story. When a person brings up their refusal to take vaccines, vaccine advocates almost always meet them with the same argument. What about herd immunity? Herd immunity is the idea that, since some people can't get vaccinated due to their age or a chronic illness, if everyone else gets vaccinated, it protects those people from falling ill. But there's a lot more to it than that. Many anti-vaccination advocates believe that herd immunity is nothing more than junk science and that mass vaccinations actually do more to spread the disease than contain it. This brings us to our final conspiracy theory. Vaccines aren't even effective, and the herd immunity argument is misinformed. The first thing that must be established about herd immunity is that the term can't be applied to every disease. 
Some diseases, like tetanus and diphtheria, are non-communicable, meaning that they don't spread from person to person. It makes no sense to tell someone they have to get a tetanus or diphtheria vaccine for the sake of herd immunity, since the diseases aren't even communicable. The misinformation is understandable, as the CDC's own website seems to imply that all vaccinations help protect the community. But notably, they never explicitly mention the term herd immunity. According to Paul E. M. Fine, Ph.D., the term herd immunity first appeared in publication in 1923 in a paper titled, quote, The Spread of Bacterial Infection, The Problem with Herd Immunity. Herd immunity was originally developed as a mathematical theory tested on lab mice. Also, it's important to note that the entire theory was based on natural immunity gained from prior exposure to a disease in a real-world context, not immunity gained through vaccination. When you get a disease and successfully fight it off, your body creates a natural immunity to it that lasts a lifetime. Vaccines, on the other hand, are known to wear off after time. The next development in the herd immunity theory came 10 years later, in 1933. That's when Dr. Arthur W. Heydrich studied data concerning measles outbreaks from 1900 to 1930. Because the concept of herd immunity was first used in relation to measles, we'll use that particular disease as a case study. Dr. Heydrich observed that during measles outbreaks in two different American cities, if over 55% of the children in those cities had natural immunity to measles from previously catching the disease and recovering, the most vulnerable people in a population would be protected from infection because of herd immunity. While the measles had been an issue for the U.S. since well before 1900, the number of both cases and deaths were on a steady decline from the 1930s to 1963, when the measles vaccine was first introduced. In the mid-1960s, the U.S. Public Health Service aimed to get the nation's immunity rate for measles up to Dr. Heydrich's suggested 55% with the use of the measles vaccine. With 55% immunity, the government expected to eradicate the measles by 1967. But while the number of cases and deaths did deeply decline after the application of the measles vaccine, the disease was still around in the 1970s. Health officials decided to do the next logical thing. No, it wasn't to examine how effective the measles vaccine actually was at preventing measles. It was to raise the target percentage for herd immunity. After 1963, the target percentage of immunity for measles was raised to 70%, then 75%, then 80%. By the late 1980s, due to mandatory vaccinations for school attendance, immunity among children 5 to 18 years old was believed to be over 95%. But the disease still wasn't eradicated. In fact, with measles immunity supposedly at nearly 80% overall and 95% for school-aged children, there was still a massive outbreak of measles between 1989 and 1991. According to the CDC, the epidemic led to more than 55,000 measles cases and 132 measles-related deaths. Naturally, health officials initially blamed unvaccinated preschool-aged children of color in the inner cities as the source of the outbreak. 
but they soon realized that a large segment of white, college-age students were also affected by measles, even though they would all have received a mandatory measles vaccine before starting primary school. You may think that after this epidemic, health officials would surely examine the effectiveness of the measles vaccine, but they didn't. Their solution was just to recommend more vaccines. In 1992, the CDC added another dose of measles to the recommended vaccine schedule. They also recommended that every adult get a booster shot. With a second dose of the measles vaccine, the CDC declared that immunity to the disease would last for life. Many anti-vaccination activists argue that if vaccines are effective, then why is a second shot needed? Either the vaccines are ineffective or pharmaceutical companies are recommending the extra vaccines solely for the sake of profit. Perhaps both might be true. As we mentioned before, vaccines wear off, typically after 10 years, sometimes in as little as two years. There's also another factor to consider. Sometimes vaccines just don't work properly for no clear reason. Most vaccines have a miss rate of between 2 and 10%. A few vaccines, like ones for the flu, have huge miss rates. In 2012, the flu vaccine's miss rate was 61%, and the rate varies year to year. Here's CDC Director Dr. Tom Frieden on the 2014 vaccine. Of the viruses that have been further characterized, at CDC, all of the viruses have shown to be a good match with the 2000-2001 influenza vaccine, the current vaccine. The massive misrate percentage alone chips away at the idea of herd immunity. Even if there were 100% mandatory measles vaccinations, like China has, you'd never have more than an absolute maximum of 98% immunity. The CDC states that one dose of measles vaccine is 93% effective and two doses is 97% effective for lifetime immunity. Of course, for the small percentage of people whose first dose isn't effective, the second dose typically doesn't take either. Running the numbers, it's not realistically feasible to reach more than 94% immunity. The percentage experts now claim is required to prevent another measles epidemic. This may be why, over 50 years after the vaccine was introduced, measles still hasn't been eradicated. In fact, the only diseases that have been completely eradicated due to vaccination are polio and smallpox. It took 24 years for polio to become eradicated and nearly 200 years for smallpox to disappear. It's not clear what makes these two diseases different from the rest. Anti-vaccine theorists muse that vaccines developed in the decades after the polio vaccine simply aren't effective. The multi-billion dollar vaccine industry is built on a giant lie. Let's look at one convincing piece of evidence that might support this. The 2014 Disneyland measles outbreak. As we discussed last week, in 2014, an outbreak of measles at Disneyland garnered worldwide attention. But in the overall scope of things, the outbreak was pretty small and no one died. What makes this case interesting is the breakdown of the people who were infected. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Disneyland outbreak resulted in 131 measles cases. 
Of that number, 49 were unsure of their vaccination status, 57 were unvaccinated for a variety of reasons. The remaining 25 people were all vaccinated for measles. 10 of those people had received one dose, 13 people had two doses, and two people had three doses. The CDC stated that two doses of the measles vaccine would result in a 97% chance of lifetime measles immunity. Yet, 15 of the 131 people who were infected in this outbreak had received two or more doses of the vaccine. That doesn't sound like it adds up. Let's run some numbers. Disneyland sees approximately 30,000 visitors per day, and the outbreak lasted for five days. We know from the statistics of the people infected that not everyone at the park was vaccinated. But for the sake of argument, let's assume for a moment that all 150,000 people at the park during the outbreak received two doses of the vaccine. 3% of those twice-vaccinated visitors or 4,500 people, would still be susceptible to the measles. Looking at it that way, it seems like a miracle that only 15 people with two or more vaccinations were actually infected. Mm, Okay, the CDC may have been right. Imagine how severe the outbreak could have become if no one was vaccinated. But because many people at the park had gotten their vaccinations and booster shots, Only 131 out of an estimated 150,000 guests got the measles. That's a pretty big win for vaccination. It seems pretty clear that vaccines are helping lessen disease outbreaks, even if they can't offer 100% immunity or completely eradicate diseases. And while herd immunity is a flawed concept that doesn't perfectly work in practice, the more people that receive vaccinations, the harder it is for outbreaks to spread to epidemic proportions. The difficulty of eradicating diseases and occasional outbreaks like the one that happened at Disneyland do cast some shade on the promise of vaccines as a be-all, end-all to dangerous diseases. And it's clear we've been misled about herd immunity by well-intentioned but misinformed vaccine advocates. But all in all, it looks like vaccines are helping us. This is a murky, complicated issue. But if I have to rate it, I'll give this theory a 4 out of 10. I think that's fair. Taking into account that vaccines and herd immunity have failed to eradicate measles, it's clear something isn't right. But since there is evidence dating as far back as the 1930s that the concept of herd immunity does work in some circumstances, we should take away some of the credibility of this theory. After considering all the evidence, we believe that even though there is a history of cover-ups, severe adverse reaction risks, death, and government protections, most vaccines these days are safe and effective. This topic can be a very emotional one, no matter which side of the vaccination aisle you're on. After all, we are talking about life and death here. Overall, the intention of vaccination is that it's good for you and your neighbor. But when dealing with a subject that concerns the common good, letting oneself fall into divisive rhetoric makes it harder and harder for someone on the opposite side of an issue to consider the common good. When it comes to vaccines, people just want to be given a choice in the matter. Right now, mandatory vaccination efforts are underway across the U.S., and many people see this as an attack on their personal liberty. 
Whether intentional or not, since 1955, vaccine manufacturers have had more than a few safety incidents and have slowly stacked the deck against people who have been injured by their products. Should their lifelong injury, and in some cases death, just be considered collateral damage for the common good? The hundreds of verified American lives lost to vaccine failure since 1955 should be considered before arguing for or against vaccination, but so should the lives lost from diseases like smallpox and polio before vaccinations were created. If you do decide to get a vaccine, it's important you do all the research you can to know the brand name, manufacturer, risks associated, ingredients, and possible adverse reactions. After all, if you need to claim damages in the vaccine court, you'll only get one shot. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Sammy Sarzoza and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.